0: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad that you've joined the program today. And uh, apologies for Friday, by the way. I couldn't get to the studio uh, because of all of the rain that we had in farm. But we actually had a couple of the uh, bridges into the uh, town of Farmville itself, were uh, we're closed. And uh, yeah, so couldn't get to the studio, couldn't do a show, but uh, we're back today. Hopefully you had a, a good weekend. Now on today's program, we're going to focus on a, a big piece at the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch uh, that I, I think is is worth exploring. Um, this is uh, it's it's part of a series that uh, both the Kansas City Star and the St. Louis Post Dispatch have been doing on uh, "quote unquote" gun violence uh, in these cities. St. Louis, Missouri, uh, the most right up there with Detroit, Michigan, in terms of the most uh, violent city uh, in the United States, and like many uh, urban areas across the United States, violent crime is going up. This year, and so um, this this, uh, new piece of the St. Louis Post Dispatch takes a look at one neighborhood in particular. In fact, one mile uh, in particular, one mile in St. Louis, death comes too often on stretch of North Grand, and and I think this is worth highlighting because when we talk about gun control as a crime reduction tool. You know, obviously, as gun owners, we object to a lot of these gun control laws on constitutional grounds. Right. Well, you're infringing on our right to keep and bear arms with the idea that this is going to have some sort of trickle down impact on violent criminals. And we object to uh, various gun control laws uh, because, again, these are aimed at legal gun owners, not at violent criminals. But one of the other problems take put, take the Constitution, set it aside for a second, which I know the anti-gun advocates would love to do, and you're still faced with the fact that gun control and these gun control laws are not designed to actually reduce violent crime where it happens. You know, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch notes, and let me uh, call this up here, Talking about this so one mile stretch on North Grand and North St. Louis, this area has among the greatest concentration of gun violence in America. It touches three of St. Louis's 20 neighborhoods that accounted for more than 25% of all homicides in Missouri in 2019, despite making up less than 1.5% of the state population. It's a hot spot in a city that in 2019 had the top homicide rate among large U.S. cities for the sixth year running. Okay, so again, three neighborhoods in St. Louis, Missouri, home to about one and a half percent of the state's population, home to 25 percent of the state's homicides. Now, what do you think would better serve the good people in that bad neighborhood or in those bad neighborhoods? Another gun control law aimed at legal gun owners that can be enforced against violent criminals, maybe maybe after the fact, after a crime has been committed, after somebody has been hurt or killed? Or do you think that it might be more effective to actually target these neighborhoods where there is a shockingly disproportionate amount of violent crime taking place? To me, the answer is pretty simple. You go where the crimes are. And unfortunately, in these neighborhoods, there's a lot of crime, and it is exacerbated. It's a vicious cycle. Uh, Denisha Calhoun was interviewed for this uh, story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Her brother, Robert Clemens Jr., was murdered earlier this year, uh, back on July 21st, uh, in this neighborhood studied heating and air conditioning repair, had worked in maintenance for the St. Louis Public Library, had a wife and three sons, seven, five, and three years old. And Calhoun says she has few answers about who killed her brother, put out a $5,000 reward, but no one's been arrested. She fears that witnesses are too scared of retaliation to speak to police. She said, quote, St. Louis has always been a place of walking on eggshells adding that she lost an uncle to gun violence in the city back in 2006. This is another key in terms of actually reducing the amount of violent crime, whether we're talking about these neighborhoods in St. Louis, uh, high-crime neighborhoods in Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, Seattle. It, it, it doesn't matter. One of the big problems that law enforcement faces, that these communities face, is not just law enforcement, is the fact that if you don't have witness cooperation, if you don't have people who are willing to testify, not only willing to talk to a police officer that an arrest can be made, but willing to testify in court, then it becomes really difficult to solve a lot of these cases. And if you're not making arrests, and if you're not prosecuting these homicides, it is not unreasonable for criminals to believe that they can get away, quite literally, with murder. And that is, unfortunately, what is happening uh, in St. Louis, particularly in this uh, stretch on North Grant. St. Louis Post-Dispatch writes that there's about a 40% clearance rate among the 46 murder cases along the mile since 2010, according to police data and coverage by the Post-Dispatch. That is slightly below the clearance rate for the city of St. Louis as a whole in 2019, when 47% of homicides were cleared, which is still short of the national homicide clearance rate of around 60%. Chief of police there in uh, St. Louis told the Post Dispatch that a lack of cooperation from witnesses and victims contributes to the low clearance number. Now, look, we know the code of the street. You get shot. You're part of the uh, the gang lifestyle, the drug lifestyle. You don't bring the cops into this, right? Stitches get stitches. Now we can talk again about the, the difficulties that that poses to law enforcement. But even beyond this um, criminal culture that says, you know what, don't get the cops involved. It is those witnesses who I think are a, a key... To reducing violent crime, uh, city of St. Louis actually working with the uh, governor uh, Parson there in Missouri, they have established a witness protection program. It is not funded yet, but they have established a program, and that would be a huge step forward. Because again, if you don't have people who are willing to put themselves out there, then the criminal justice system can't work, and if arrests aren't made. If the, you know, uh, the the clearance rate for homicides, 40% or less, again, that means you have a better than 50% chance of getting away with murder. And unless there are consequences, there will be more violent crime. Thomas Apt, Senior Fellow of the Council on Criminal Justice, he's the author of Bleeding Out the Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets, says that uh, the concentration of violence there in this uh, one-mile stretch, typical of uh, urban crime around the country, he says that urban violence is surprisingly sticky, uh, concentrated in a very small number of people and blocks. Again, raising the question, so what, what good are these laws that are imposed on 100 million legal gun owners when the issue Nationwide, we're talking about a few thousand individuals, the vast majority of whom are in illegal possession of a firearm, right? So what good does it do to ban, quote-unquote, you know, large-capacity magazines, say all ammunition magazines over 10 rounds, they got to go away, or to impose some sort of uh, subjective gun licensing law that allows the local police chief to say, well, you know what, I know you met all the statutory requirements, you've gone through the training, but um, I just, I got a bad feeling about you, so no, I'm not going to give you a gun license. What good do those laws do in addressing the type of crime that we're seeing in these neighborhoods in St. Louis? I would argue they do very little to actually address the violent crime because they're aimed in the wrong direction. Again, these are laws that are, are designed to restrict the lawful exercise of the right to keep and bear arms, rather than laws that are designed to focus on individuals who are already outside of the law and who are operating outside of the law and who have no regard for the laws on the books, be it a magazine ban or a prohibition against murder, right? Those are those individuals that we need to focus on. These are the neighborhoods that have this disproportionate amount of violent crime that we need to focus on. And, and, you know, I've had some conversations with uh, Thomas Apt online. Uh, He he is a believer in gun control. But I I cite him because he's also right about what he calls the law of crime concentration. He says in the vast majority of cities, less than 5% of areas make up the majority of serious violent crime. And he says that people too often believe that crime is rampant in a particular neighborhood uh, when in actuality it happens in small pockets. He says there's a lot of focus when you talk about crime on curing poverty or inequality. And he said, I support those for other reasons, but those will take decades to improve. They're not targeted enough. You have to address violence directly to save lives right now, he says, focus on the damn violence. And that I wholeheartedly agree with. And again, when it comes to focusing on the violence, that means you don't focus on the legal gun owners. It means you don't focus on the 100 million plus Americans who are exercising their right to keep and bear arms safely and responsibly. It means you look at, in any given city, where these crimes are occurring, You identify the most prolific offenders, who, by the way, are known to police. They are known to members of the community, even if the members of the community are afraid to speak out. And there are a couple of things that you can do once you've identified the nexus, uh, the the, the focal point of violent crime in any given neighborhood. Again, most of the uh, individuals who are driving this violent crime They're already in the criminal justice system. They've already been arrested. They've already been convicted. So you can call them in. And uh, this has been shown to be pretty effective around the country. Project Ceasefire. You bring in these individuals and facing them, two groups of people. On one side, you've got law enforcement. You've got everybody from, you know, the beat cops to the police chief to the U.S. attorney to the D.A., On the other side, you've got the community. You've got moms and dads. You've got former teachers. You've got pastors. You've got activists. And the message from both of those groups is the same. You're going to stop shooting people. You're going to stop shooting people. And we'll help you if you will let us. And we will make you if you don't. And that message has to be backed up. It can't just be an empty promise. Cases have to be referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office. These cases have to be brought in some uh, you know certain uh, circumstances uh, into the federal courts, where tougher sentences will be doled out, so that people aren't getting slaps on the wrist and they're back on the street you know a few months later, because that too has an impact on the willingness of witnesses to be able to testify. Why would somebody put their neck out if they believe that six months from now, the person that they're testifying against is going to be back on the street looking for them? Would you do that? Would you put your name on the record? Would you go to court knowing that this individual's associates are still out on the street and he's likely to be back out on the streets in just a few months looking for you for retaliation? I don't know that I would. And I don't know that we can expect a lot of people in those circumstances to go ahead and take a stand and be brave, knowing the consequences that might await them. But again, if these individuals, if the good people in these bad neighborhoods understand, all right, you know what? The authorities are serious about this. And they're taking these bad actors. And yeah, they're trying to get them to change their lives around. We've got programs to get them their GED job training programs, but those folks who won't take advantage of that, those folks who want to stick to a life of crime, well, I'm watching now as these cases go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I'm watching these 20 and 30 year sentences being handed down. And that gives me the courage to step up and to speak out when I've seen something, when I know who pulled the trigger, but I know who was responsible for taking that innocent life. Again, None of this involves banning AR-15s, banning magazines over 10 rounds, repealing the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, establishing restrictive gun licensing laws, one-gun-a-month laws, lost or stolen laws. None of those, none of those gun control proposals touch the violent criminals in neighborhoods like the ones we just talked about in St. Louis. And the programs that are most effective don't touch legal gun owners because they're actually designed to go after those violent criminals. Again, we, we see the results in places like St. Louis and Detroit and in Baltimore where the gun control mindset and the anti gun agenda is so prevalent that leaders can't think outside of the box. They're stuck in that decades-old thinking of, well, we can just ban our way to safety. No, you really can't. And St. Louis is evidence of that. What we can do is get smart about tackling violent crime. We can focus on the perpetrators of this violence. And we can ensure... That the law-abiding residents, the good people in these bad neighborhoods, actually have a right to protect themselves that shall not be infringed. I get passionate about this subject, I really do, because it, well, for the very reasons I just talked about. You know, again, there are lives being lost in these cities needlessly. Because the crime rate doesn't have to be as high as it is. And the policies that are in place do not have to be as ineffective as they are. And, you know, gun control advocates, they, they try to claim that they've got the moral high ground. Well, when their policies don't do a damn thing to actually impact this violence, but instead are aimed at people who are trying to protect themselves and their families from acts of violence like this. No, they have no moral high ground. And gun owners, you know, not only do, in my opinion, do we have an obligation and a responsibility to stand up for our right to keep and bear arms. But I believe that we've got a responsibility as well to actually point people to the right direction in terms of making this society a safer place. Don't forget, we've seen violent crime in this country drop by more than 50% since the early 1990s without, without any major gun control laws Having come into play. Brady bill passed in 94. Violent crime started dropping three years before that. The quote-unquote assault weapons ban had no impact on violent crime whatsoever. We know that we can reduce violent crime without gun control laws because we have. And again, it's up to I think it's it's up, up to gun owners to talk about these efforts that that are successful, that do work. In addition to simply pushing back against the unconstitutional infringements on our right to keep and bear arms. All right, let's get to today's armed citizen story, our uh, good deed of the day, our recidivist report. Perfect example of what we've been talking about here. California, lots of gun control laws on the books. You know what else? Criminals don't seem to give a rip. Yeah. Suspect arrested for allegedly randomly firing handgun while cruising through Santa Rosa neighborhoods. Mm hmm. This is from uh, San Francisco, uh, CBS in San Francisco. A 21-year-old Santa Rosa man in custody Monday morning after he allegedly drove through several neighborhoods intoxicated and uh, fired shots randomly from a handgun out of his vehicle's window. Santa Rosa police say Daniel Guerrero Berrigan has been booked into the Sonoma County Jail on several charges, including DUI and illegally discharging a handgun from a vehicle. Apparently this happened uh, Saturday evening. Initial call to a dispatch came from residents who heard six to eight gunshots and then saw a Ford SUV leaving the area. Uh, Throughout the evening, Santa Rosa police responded to additional reports of gunfire at additional locations throughout the southwest portion of the city. It was just after 9 p.m. when an officer uh, standing inside his vehicle heard gunfire in the area, searched the uh, nearby locations and spotted a green Ford Expedition vehicle matching the initial description of the uh, first Shooting incident, officer conducted a traffic enforcement stop, saw a handgun on the center console. Driver detained with that incident, found to be under the influence of alcohol. Firearm in the vehicle, found to be an unregistered 9mm Glock with a 30-round magazine, uh, both of which illegal for the uh, suspect to possess there under California law. Yeah. And according to CBS in San Francisco, officers identified the suspect as 21-year-old Daniel Guerrero Berrigan, who has a, quote, history of firearms possession and was on probation. He's 21. He's 21 years of age. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but California has some of the most restrictive gun control laws on the books. So how is it that with all those gun control laws in place, first, Mr. Guerrero-Berrigan was able to illegally acquire a firearm, But secondly, given all those gun control laws on the books in California, why was this 21-year-old of previous criminal history driving around the streets with an illegally obtained gun to begin with? Perhaps, again, it's because California's focus is more frequently on the law-abiding citizen than the violent offender. Our uh, armed citizen story of the day from Van Buren, Arkansas, where a uh, homeowner ended up shooting a man who was hiding in his closet Yeah. Uh, Van Buren Police Sergeant Jonathan Ware says the homeowner opened the door to the closet, actually saw the person looking at him in the closet. He confronted the man that was in his home. That man became combative. uh, And at that point, the homeowner ended up having to fire shots at him. According to police, the uh, intruder taken to a local hospital with non-life-threatening injuries to his leg. When he's released, he's most likely going to be facing burglary charges. Uh, Detectives say that uh, the guy actually had the homeowner's wallet. Uh, and a pair of his shorts. So we think he was actually in the house trying to steal things from the homeowner. It happened uh, Thursday morning, about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Homeowner is unharmed, not facing any charges, thankfully. And again, the uh, suspect, once he's released from the hospital, he'll be uh, facing some criminal charges there. Finally, our good deed of the day from Seminole, Oklahoma. I, I I'm I cannot even imagine uh, what Officer Anthony Louie went through. On Friday morning. He uh, arrived to his own home to see it engulfed in flames, and he knew that two of his children were inside. According to uh, KWTV Channel 9, uh, as Officer Louis made his way inside the home, his wife Lorene says that he was actually able to rescue their children. She said, when I arrived at the house, they told me that he had run through the doors, through the TV, through the black glass, the back glass door to get the kids out. And obviously, Louis managed to pull out 14-year-old Thomas, 7-year-old AJ. He uh, suffered second and third degree burns himself, rescuing his children from that uh, house fire. His wife said that she had left the home just about an hour before the fire started. She was told an electrical issue may have sparked the blaze. And she said what her husband did to save the children, nothing short of incredible. She said, uh, my heart dropped to know that he's a good dad. He does a lot for him, does a lot for the city. He is recovering. He is expected to be released from the hospital later this week. And uh, she said, now that I know that everything's going to be okay and everything else can be replaced, at least I have all of them still. Again, you know, we talk about the bravery and heroism of these officers uh, running into the flames to rescue a stranger. That might be emotionally easier than running into the flames knowing that you're rescuing your own kids. But in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Officer Anthony Louie there in Seminole, Oklahoma, we thank you for your very good deed. We wish you a speedy recovery and uh, well wishes to you and your family. Now that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam & Company. want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a program. Or if you just like the audio version, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all those will work. We certainly do appreciate your support. We'll be back with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all around the nation on tomorrow's edition. But in the meantime, be well, be safe, be free. And we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms, Kim and Company.